I used to be on the hotel food and yeah. beverage side. Yeah. So I can be a big mouth now, but, you know, things change. But uh, You're like that ex-smoker who also always tells people that they should quit. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the XNMO Wine Co podcast. I'm David Clark. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is at least for now forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. We are relying on the internet to record these podcasts, and it doesn't always behave. So we have done what we can to make it as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast, we have Colleen Morris, owner and operator of Wine Menu, a boutique wine retailer in Johannesburg, South Africa's largest city. Colleen was originally from the Western Cape and worked in hospitality before moving into wine retail. She moved north to Johannesburg about five years ago. I wanted to chat to Colleen about the wine market in Gauteng, and that carried us off in a few different directions, such as restaurant wine lists and their BYO policies, the validity of wine shows and their awards buying patterns um, in Johannesburg, and who were the thought leaders that drove those buying patterns. Colleen is a forthright driven business owner who is passionate about wine. She's done a lot in a short time to help invigorate the fine wine market in Johannesburg, and it was a pleasure speaking with her. I give you Colleen Morris. I'm joined by Colleen Morris. Hi, Colleen. Hi, David. How are you doing there on that side? Yeah, good, man. Good. For those who don't buy wine off you, maybe just give us a brief rundown of your life in wine up until this point and just a brief explanation of what, you're, what you do now. So uh, my life in wine, sure, started probably at the age of five, but no, we won't go that far back. Thanks to my dad giving us a tiny little sip at the lunch table on a Sunday, um, like most of us in South Africa probably did. Um, but yeah, I grew up on a farm in the lovely valley of Cirrus and uh, we, my grandfather, my dad, they planted a little bit of vineyards um, when we were kids. So there used to be some Columbar and Chenin Blanc and those kind of things. Uh, and then it made way for apples and pears mostly over time. Uh, but my dad then also, with the help of uh, good old um, Dame P. Bailey and the people from Romans Refugee Wine Cellars at that time, who was the co-op, planted some of the first Chardonnay vineyards in the country. There has always been a little bit of a foot or, I guess, a, a, a hand in the wine industry somehow through my childhood. But really, after school, was hotels, worked in hotels, and uh, via the hotels, ended up in the food and beverage side. And uh, eventually, in about 2003, I think it was, 2002, 2003, um, I joined Caroline's Fine Wine Cellar in Cape Town. I joined at the waterfront, a store that was still existing at that time with Jane Eats. The two of us were there. And uh, that's really where my life in wine retail started. Um, Caroline's really the one who introduced me to the retail side of things. In fact, I actually went to her and said, you know, Caroline, I've, I feel like my day doesn't involve enough wine. The percentages need to change of how much wine is part of my life. And I sort of just had a chat with her and said, look, you know, what would you do? You know, you've been on many sides. Do I go and see if I can work for a farm? Do I see if I go and work for a company like a Mark, what? And then she actually, after a while, said to me, well, you know, the position is available if you want to come and join me. And, and that's really how it started. Never really looked back from there. It just stayed in retail from there. Worked in London, um, worked in Fancourt, uh, Hunter's Country House in Plettenberg Bay. That's really sort of where the wine thing started for me because we mm. had the most amazing wine cellar to work with. Um, and it was, was very fortunate that the Hunter family also had a love for wine and enjoyed going to the auctions and they allowed me to buy some of the first vintage of Columella ever. They hated me for it because they didn't realize how much it was going to cost when I 
right. when I made them sign on the dotted line, <laughs> things like that. So it was it was really lovely place to work and to to explore and start collecting wine for somebody else, really, and with somebody else's money, which was really quite quite lovely. It's always handy. But yeah. Now you're you're no longer working for Caroline. Seventeen years later, um, what, <laughs> what, how long were you with Caroline for? Caroline, I left in 2007, early with the birth of my first child. Uh, so okay. when my daughter was born, um, that was sort of when I took a, a, materni- a permanent maternity leave. <laughs> Decided that um, to spend some time with my child and took a year off. And uh, after a year, realized like I'm not the best stay-at-home mum. It's probably better if I um, work again a little bit. Um, and uh, that led to me going to Wine Magazine. So I worked for Wine Magazine for... I think it was probably a year, year and a half. No, no, it was probably two years, actually, um, where I was uh, the sourcing lady. So whenever there was a competition or a test of that Christian wanted to do or something, then, you know, I would be on the phone to find out who's got what. And so what was really cool about that is that you really had to know who's doing the zoo and who's making something new and who's releasing what and what vintages. So I got to know all the farms and all the guys really, really well. And you really had to know every farm and every producer. And that was really, really fantastic. You know, because I think that it's very easy wherever you work to sort of get stuck in a zone. Uh, say, for instance, you work for a Vinnie Mark. You get to know their portfolio really well, but you may be out of touch with everything else. So, you know, if you can be in a position where you kind of are forced to be in touch with absolutely everybody, then it's a, it's a really cool position to be in. Yeah, um, having, a, yeah, having your finger on the pulse yeah. is a, is a, a very um, underappreciated uh, skill and attribute. Yes, and it's it's actually not so easy, you know, because in South Africa things change quickly and trends, and there's so much freedom in how winemakers can work, how they source their grapes, and what they do with it. And uh, you know, there's a lot less restriction as far as uh, you know as, as some other countries of what grapes they can use and what they can put together. So you really have to sort of, you know, if you follow, say, for instance, some of your guys, you know, say, for instance, the Cravens, you know, they source grapes from many different vineyards. It's not their own farms. You know, it's it's not that easy always to keep up with which wine, where's the grapes from, who made it, what did they do and how did they make it. Uh, but it's fun. That's the fun side for us. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, that's 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 where passion drives excellence because if you were passionate about it, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily put that effort in. Yeah, you, I think in the industry that we're in, uh, sort of the route that we, the, the path that we're taking at Wine Menu is to, uh, you know, we don't, we're not mainstream. We don't want to be doing the same as uh, the typical sort of bottle store, if I could put it that way, and supermarket retailer. For us, it's very much about um, knowing who's who in the zoo and what they're making or what's new and exciting stuff. And But, you know, f- the first criteria is always quality. So, you know, you follow these guides and you end up knowing who can you follow blindly, whose wine, if they release something, you don't even need to taste it, you know it's going to be good. But it's also about keeping your ear on the ground as to say, for instance, reading that you tasted a wine and what you said about it and you get to know whose palates and whose opinions is worth following because face it when we sit in Joburg we don't get the first bottle that comes out you know we sort of a few steps down the line before the first bottle reaches Joburg before we can taste it by then Christian has tasted it maybe um, uh, Roland and James has tasted already maybe you've tasted it so we sort of keep our ear on the ground to see who's tasted what and what are they saying and from that we sometimes put a huge amount of effort into get it as quickly as possible. We'll go like, mm, it's okay, we can wait on that one. It's, it's very important to have your ear on the ground the whole time. 
I will have um, recorded a little intro for you, but maybe chat to us about Wine Menu and what it is and how long has it been going and what its purpose is. Wine Menu um, is sort of an offspring from Wine Concepts, really. Um, I joined Wine Concepts in 2010 in Cape Town in Newlands with Mike Duggan and Sue Proudfoot and them. And then in 2012, we made a decision that we should open a store in Johannesburg, which I then said, I'll take that bull by its horns, a task that I didn't quite realize at the time maybe (laughs) what I was getting myself into. But uh, there wasn't turning back. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. At the end of 2013, I moved up to Joburg um, to come and run the store up here, really, because uh, it wasn't possible to run it remotely. You can't run a specialist wine store remotely. There's too much um, emphasis on knowing your clients, knowing your customers, that personal service, all that stuff. You can't do that remotely. So it was important to be here. And then we realized quickly that, uh, you know, the whole scene of Cape Town and Joburg is so different. I mean, it's, it's just completely different. You cannot run the Joburg thing the same way we, we ran a store in Cape Town. You can't have the same selection of wines. It's a, it's a completely different way of, of doing stuff. So we decided to, to break away from each other. And uh, that's how Wine Menu was established. So, yes, uh, Wine Menu really... Um, started standing on its own in 2015 focus really is to bring the best wine quality wine from whether it's small producers big producers doesn't matter who it is if it's quality and we're happy to put our stamp on it then we'll support it and we'll sell it yeah and it's in Joburg not so easy because you only have so many guys that actually follow these trends and follow these things and yeah so for us I think our biggest job we sort of see ourselves doing constantly is education and and exposing uh, the general uh, Joburg people to all the amazing stuff. And at the same time, I have to say though that I was completely blown away to realize how many people in not just Johannesburg, Johannesburg, Pretoria, Gauteng, let's call it um, Gauteng, um, is really incredibly knowledgeable about what is going actually on. But over the years, they got used to having to source these things directly from the growers. They have some kind of a connection maybe to the Cape. Maybe some of them actually is originally from the Cape or studied in Stellenbosch or have a friend who used to be or in the financial industry in Joburg and now owns a farm in the Cape or whatever the case. There are so many links. And I was gobsmacked to find out how many people really had their finger on the pulse. And I think for those people, it was really nice to see that there's somebody now in Joburg who appreciates these things as well and that they now don't have to buy a case of the stuff, ship it up from the Cape, they can now come in and pop in and have a look at what else we have and uh, realize that, you know, all the the good small, it's all about the small parcel stuff that was never really available in retail in Joburg because the retailers in Joburg on average used to be very much focused on volume. If it's not available in volume, if it's not available through my mainstream supplier, then, uh, you know, I'm not going to bother. It's far too much effort. More it's of a supermarket mentality, perhaps? Yeah, I think it's all about how much profit can I make? You know, Joburg runs on money. That sort of mentality is 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 sort of what uh, drives it. Being said that I'm not the only small retailer in Joburg. You know, we have Dry Dock, Riverside, Leakers as well. They, they're doing great stuff too. But, you know, we're small guys. For us, really from the start, I think that was probably the, what made opening the store in Joburg the most difficult thing for me was to realize that so many wines that I was so easy to get my hands on in Cape Town easily was suddenly really hard work. I had to 
bring the wines up, often pay you know, the extra career fees to get the winemaker to send me a case of two or three or 10 or whatever of his wines. There was nobody selling it in Joburg at all. You guys didn't exist yet at that time. Uh, public wasn't in Johannesburg yet at that time. So all the small guys that distributors like you guys represent um, didn't exist then yet. You know, we would phone, for instance, think about Sons of Sugarland when that came out. You phone Renan and you say, Renan, this is true. Oh, really? Do you want some of it in Joburg? Yeah, please, you know. And it comes up. Mick and Janine stuff, for instance, you know, it's like, Mick, you know, can we maybe get some in Joburg? Yeah, sure, make a plan, career it up, you know. Uh, so it was every single wine was almost hand sourced, hand, hand delivered every time. You know, it wasn't an easy, easy run. It wasn't an easy way of doing business because it's not a, one-stop shop, one phone call, and your order gets delivered. But that's and, what made it fun. But there's there's, yeah. there's two parts to running a wine shop. Obviously, there's the sourcing part, which you're talking about, but there's also the selling part. So if you're spending all of your time trying to source the wines and get them in the shop, you haven't got mm. time to actually go out there and, and sell them and, and show people and, and provide exposure to people about what, what is actually happening. Was that part of the struggle as well in terms of stealing your time away from actually growing the business on the other side? Quite right. Yeah, if you have a small business, it, it's kind of that one-man band scenario. Uh, you have to do it all yourself. You know, there's no resources to employ a marketing manager and uh, this and that. So you end up doing it yourself. Um, and yes, you're quite right. So initially, the fun was very much in getting the right products on the shelf. And then, as you say, it was like, okay, now we've got the right products now. Where the hell are we going to find the people to buy it? We started doing all sorts of things. You know, some of them small, some of them successful, some of them less, but, you know, doing tastings. So um, it was really a matter of people needed to trust us first. So they needed to, all these wines sitting on the shelf that they've never heard of before. They've never seen it in their lives before. I mean, it's not only names of producers, it was also names of varieties. You know, people were like, what the hell is Pinot Gris? You know, stuff like that. It was, uh, even the word Grenache was sort of foreign to some people. What the hell is Grenache? I don't want to generalize. It's not like everybody was completely clueless about stuff, but the average no. consumer really didn't have exposure to all interesting varieties and producers. So yes, so then we sort of shifted and realized, okay, fine, let's find a balance. And we started doing um, some tasting, some dinners with winemakers, uh, some more focused tastings in our shop um, and some some events. So I think one of the events that people still talk about as it was quite a sort of shift where people realized, oh, wait, this is who my menu is, was when we did our first Unusuals Festival. Um, you were actually there, I remember. Um, so it was our first exposing people to unusual varieties. Now, I mean, for goodness sake, we shouldn't be calling Grenache an unusual variety, for instance. We shouldn't be calling Sinso an unusual variety. You know, it's it's not so unusual in South Africa. But uh, well, certainly Sinso know, um, shouldn't be that unusual because it's been here for a long, long time and had a massive amount of plantings. But yeah. I kind of understand the um, the Grenache argument because it is, you know, a relatively new variety here. It's interesting to to talk about the actual different market that Kateng is you know um, versus the Western Cape. Kateng seems yeah. from what you've said and from my experience also a little behind Western Cape on, on what's actually happening in the in the production side of things and what's actually happening. I think that there is probably if you have to count head more people in Joburg that really knows what's going on than we think but they are not buying in retail the way that maybe so I mean I think the the way that you can measure it is as to how 
how many of these wines do you distribute to retailers in Joburg? Mm. And I think a lot of the guys who are really with their fingers on the pulse actually buy directly from the farms. And, and so you wouldn't actually know that because that becomes part of a Cape Town statistic. It doesn't become a, it becomes a cellar door statistic. Um, no, it's not a Joburg retail statistic. But you've got to look at percentages. And, you know, there's a hell of a lot more people up here. If I remember there was a fantastic article that Tim James wrote about, which is a real eye-opener when you see what percentage of people drink wines at what price point and what style of wine do they drink. And then you realize that we play in a 10% of the market with this, not just the style wines we sell, but also the price points we sell at. You know, this is a, it's a tiny market that we play in. But I do think that there is still maybe some of the producers are scared to send more of their wine to Joburg because they feel safer selling it in Cape Town. They feel like they can quickly make the move whereby I know that there's some of the wines that's in short supply that I have to seriously fight for to get more than two cases up to Joburg. Yeah. Okay, but what must I do with two cases? You know, so there is very much this thing of uh, uncertainty as to whether the Joburg market can handle it or not. And then there's the other side, you know, where they say, but Joburg has the money. Why are these people not buying all the expensive wines? I was going to ask you about that because, because Johannesburg, as you say, is the biggest population center and it is the, the center of the financial market in South Africa. That's a query that I had and, and I'll be interested to get, to get your take on that. I think that people who have money have money because they know how to handle their money and when to spend it and not spend it. They know that, you know, I think in the past few years when the economy has been tight, they know where, how much of that money they should spend on wine and how much they should maybe just rather keep it in the, um, in the overseas investment or something. The thing is that they do buy expensive wine. It's just not what you and I think. They, it's, a, it's an image thing. I think there's a huge thing about brand consciousness. It's a bit like, you know, the clothes you wear. It's all about the image. It's about the car you drive. So when I sit in a restaurant, it's about the bottle that's standing on my table. I want people to see that I am drinking a canonical pole sour from whichever vintage. Or I want people to see the bottle of Shiva's Regal or the bottle of Cristal. Um, and then to put fairly unknown bottle of maybe von Lochenberg graft on the table and everybody that walks past doesn't know this label and they go like, okay, well, they don't think anything of you, neither here nor there. But you walk past the table and you see three bottles of Cristal on the table and go, look what those guys are drinking. Yeah, right. And that's what's going It's It's very much an image thing and people must, it must be immediately recognizable what money you're spending, where you're eating, which restaurant you're dining out at. Putting a bottle of French wine on the table immediately would make people take notice, even though it could be a cheap bottle of entry-level Bordeaux and nobody would even know. Yeah. So I think there's a big image thing involved, but there's also, I'm seeing, it's a slow shift, but there mm. is a shift. And it comes down to the same way that it takes small retailers like us to put these interesting wines um, in people's hands and in their homes. It also seems to be the small restaurants that makes the difference. Um, with exceptions, of course. Um, you know, if we look at say marble um the new orem they've got really interesting wines on their list but they've got to keep that balance as well but you look then at a small restaurant like faro for instance um you know we've got super interesting wines on their list but again it's just the small guys who makes the difference because we're not scared we don't have to please anybody we don't have to please some big corporate or anything like that we just do our thing 
but you know it's a I think the, the lack of international knowledge in the in the general sense is in the trade as well in South Africa I mean a lot of the the guys mm-hmm. in the trade don't really know much about wine outside of South Africa so even they when they get a bottle of inch level Bordeaux because it says Bordeaux on the label mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe a little bit more um, sure, a hell of a lot of excitement just because it's yeah, French excitement yeah <laughs> I think uh, yeah I think um, yeah I'm way more excited than than they should be in terms of what's actually in the bottle in terms of quality. There is that sort of sense yeah. of, of, of a very low base. So how, how can we expect the drinking public to be informed about quality when even the people in the trade here haven't got the, the drive to educate themselves? I don't know, but this is also where I'm really grateful that somebody like Caroline put me on a different path and not onto working for a, a, a nothing against uh, any one of them, but say for instance, Meridian or Remark or a DGB, where it's so easy to get stuck in your rut, you know? So you sort of, you you don't know what's going on out there because you don't have time to find out because you're so busy just selling your brand. I'd like to believe that, well, you know, it's unfortunate that there's too small a percentage of people working in our industry on the sales sides that's actually in it for the right reasons. They're in it because it's a it's a job that they feel sounds nice. Uh, they drive around selling wine, drinking wine, tasting wine. You know, they've got a half a bottle to take home at night. And it sounds so lovely. But are they really interested in learning more about wine? Are they really interested in wine itself to the point where they can comfortably talk about wine in an international sense and not just in a, their portfolio sense? Um, and that's sad. That's sad. There's, there are there are too many people out there selling wine who actually only know the one wine that they sell, and they don't know more than just that. Well, they might be passionate um, about sales, so, but they're not necessarily passionate about wine. Yeah, they may be really good at sales, but you know, they could just well then go and sell sell face masks. You know, they would be just as good at that. Yeah. But um, but I mean, I think yeah, then, then that sad, reflects on I the people they're selling too as well. So sorry to interrupt. I know we're gonna. I mean, with, this, with the slight delay on this on this uh, internet connection, we are going to overlap on each other. So apologies. But mm. with that, then there is that sort of forward, uh, you know, further on down the line, the trickle down effect. I suppose if if the people selling the wine in the tray aren't passionate about the wine, then who are they selling the wine to? Are they selling the wine to people who are also just just want to get sold to, and they just want to hear the right stories? Or are they actually uh, being inquisitive and trying to find uh, unique and interesting products? This is thing I think that comes down to those percentages we spoke about earlier, um, where you know 80% of the people really couldn't care what's in their glass. They really just want to buy a bottle of wine and have a glass of wine tonight, and whether they drink it at the right, right temperature, with or with ice, or whatever, with the right food, doesn't really matter. They just want to have a glass of wine tonight. Um, and that is the majority of the market out there um, in the world, really, not just, it's not unique to South Africa. No, of course so, not. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, you, what is sad, though, for me is that I think that farms need to take a little bit more responsibility in making sure that the person who sells their wine out there is properly trained, properly knowledgeable, and properly, let's use the word, passionate about what they're actually doing. But so often the farms are just just want to see the sales and they almost don't care how they get there. It is a problem in South Africa, for sure. But I also think it's a problem in the South African wine industry. But it's also a problem in the, the larger hospitality industry in terms of not having passionate staff um, at the coalface, at, the, yeah. uh, at the, the contact point with the customer. It's just not a thing here in South Africa that that seems to be um, okay. something that for, for business owners to invest in, perhaps because there's not enough uh, yeah, upside, there's not, that- enough, there's not enough return on that investment. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting 
Yeah, we need to look at who, who's to blame. You know, who, what, how do we correct this? Is there a way of correcting this? Um, and I know that you and I have, have spoken about this before, about the lovely term of sommelier um, that is a position that you hold in South Africa rather than a qualification. And, you know, it's stuff like that that, that really becomes a problem because then you have people that say like, well, you know, why must I put the hard work and the effort and the studies and the everything in to become a sommelier when I can just go and apply for the job and get it? Well, um, yeah, and it's, and it's a self-appointed so, title. Yeah. Which is yeah, interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, I think there's, there's many reasons for being where we are. Um, I do think we can look back at things like, you know, coming out of the 80s, 90s, where we really didn't have exposure to the rest of the world. We didn't even know how to have fancy fancy five-star restaurants with sommeliers and things, you know, at the level that London, New York, those places were at. For us, it was just wine stewards. We were just serving wine and we were only serving South African wine, really. There was very little imports in South Africa. Um, it still isn't a hell of a lot. Apart, yeah, from the, I mean, apart from yeah, the but, sort of the handful of... Of restaurants that uh, you and I could name pretty pretty quickly, so Mosaic, you know, Marble, um, Saints, Orem, and then the list gets pretty thin after that um, in terms of yeah, offering offering deep international um, options on a wine list. But I think it's it even even if you just want to focus on South African wine, you know, there is so much out there that is completely untapped and not put on wine lists enough it's just too easy to take that listing from the big company who pays you it's just too easy to have a mediocre wine list that's the same as everybody else it's just too easy but obviously the, you know, the so customer doesn't the, care that much because obviously i mean that's the other no. point of it is the um the actual diner obviously doesn't mm. you're not actually feeling a need for the majority of diners with that sourcing of interesting unique products maybe they want to feel comfortable with their um, the, the wine that they drink and have drunk for the last, you know, eight to ten years. Yeah, but I think that we blame the customer but too quickly sometimes because I remember having a restaurateur telling me because I helped him to make a nice little small wine list that he can change easily and quickly and keep it interesting. And less than a month later, uh, he was back to the old wine list that had the good old trusted names on it. And, you know, none of those wines are bad. But I said to him, why are you doing this? You know, you don't need to – you." You don't need to have these wines in your wine list. So I says, no, but people keep asking for it. So I said, so how many of those people who asked for that wine and you told them you don't have it actually got up and walked out? Do you really believe that people come to your restaurant only because you have that wine that they're so used to having all the time? No, there must be more reasons than just your that wine to come to your wine, to your restaurant. You know, so I think it's that whole thing of having some confidence in what you're doing believing that but it also it comes down to training it comes down to the restauranteur the restaurant owner all of them need to be on the same page to say we want to be known for what we do our good food our good service our knowledgeable staff and our amazing wine list we put make a small wine list know the products have be able to chat about those few ones these big wine lists that's just i don't understand why you have to have such a big wine list um have a small wine list and rather change it quickly but, you know, if you can't, if a customer says to you, look, I'd really like this wine that I'm very used to. It's my favorite go-to wine. Do you have it? You say, no, I don't have it, but I've got X, Y, Z, and this is why we chose this. And this is very similar to what you would like. But if you don't know the products on your wine list, then you can't do that. And that's why the restauranteurs then 
take the easy route out of just, okay, well, let's just put that old wine back on the wine list because everybody keeps asking for it. Yeah, I think unless we change the mindset and the the effort that's being put in from the restauranteur, the restaurant manager, the, the staff, if we change that effort and input from that side, then the consumer will follow. They're not going to buy a wine that they've never had in their life. And if they look at a wine list and maybe the third wine list that they look at and they see the same wine on it, they go like, wait a minute, I've seen this wine now three times on a wine list already. Maybe it's time that I try it. We've got to start somewhere. I much prefer talking about possible solutions than listing all of the problems for sure. But I, I don't think, you know, ch- changing up the wine list um, away from the the very well-known names is a is a solution because it's just it's it's not a quick fix because as you say with that mm-hmm. with that change comes the extra responsibility of well you actually have to interact with the customer now because mm-hmm. you're changing the rules of what of what they've come to expect from your establishment you have mm-hmm. to give them the confidence in you and your choices to to go along with the wines mm-hmm. that you're listing so, and I think that's the big piece that's missing in the trade in, in South Africa. I mean, I, I look at places yeah, like... Yeah, it comes down um, to like, education, like, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and also the desire, you know, the passion is, again, yeah. go back to the passion. If are they passionate about sales? Are they passionate that they think that changing the wine list to a sort of a, a, a smaller boutique edge to it will, will benefit sales? Is that why they're doing it? Then if they're doing it because of that, and I don't think it's going to be a success. If they're doing it because they're passionate about what those producers are actually putting in bottle and their stories and their journeys, then absolutely it'll be successful. Yeah, I remember at the beginning of our conversation, you touched mm-hmm. on the base, uh, the fact that when I open wine menu, um, you know, we focus so much on having the right selection of wines and everything, and then you go like, oh, wait a minute, now we need the customers. Mm-hmm. So there's always this thing as well where maybe the restaurants are saying, you know, I don't have time for this. I am so busy um, working out my food cost and deciding where I'm going to get my milk from tomorrow that I don't have time to now go and sit and study wine too. Really? I'm just going to get somebody to do my wine list and just has to work. It comes down to that thing as well about having the balance between everything you do and, and deciding why are you doing what you're doing? But in the end of the day, you know, we talk about wine and I don't, I'm not a restauranteur, so, you know, they've got lots of things they have to worry about that I don't have to worry about. But the fact of the matter is I think that we have a huge amount of super interesting wines in good enough supply to see more of it on restaurant lists. I totally agree with you. And we would love that because... I totally agree with you in terms of... But what I'm sort of getting at, and I think we might actually be agreeing with each other, I have this phrase that we're furiously agreeing with each other. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) So if this restaurateur uh, restaurateur is farming off their wine list to someone else to write, then they're not actually passionate about wine. Yes. You have to actually be careful about the wine list that you produce for these people because they obviously don't care much because they're just farming it off to somebody Mm. in a third party. I mean, they care that... They have the reputation for being a good restaurateur, but in terms of actual specific content of the wine list, it's not. It's really just more about will this attract customers or will it not? I think then it comes down to just being a good business owner to know that if there's something that you're not good at, you employ somebody else who's good at it to do that part for you. I think it, it, it comes down to that. If you as a restaurateur are incredibly passionate about the food you cook in your kitchen mm-hmm. and you are just an amazing chef, um, I've met many chefs who don't drink wine at all. You know, that it happens a lot. But then you employ somebody else who is good with the wine because you cannot have a good restaurant only with good food. You've you've got to have, you know, a balance between all the stuff. So, and you get other restaurateurs that's just so good with people and they're the front of house guys, you know. They employ a damn fine chef to make their food. 
Then at the same token, they must employ a damn fine person to run their wine program. I just think it's, it's, it's a mindset of understanding the importance of the wine in a restaurant and that for many years, a restaurant was seen as a good restaurant based on the food more than anything else. You know, and it's time that we realize that the wine program is equally important. So, um, but yeah, that's, uh, I, th- I think that's where, where I'm at. But hey, I'm a retailer. I used to be on the hotel food and yeah. beverage side. Yeah. So I can be a big mouth now, but, you know, things change. But uh, You're like that ex-smoker who also always tells people that they should quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. You should do the, this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. This is how it works. For us in retail, what we do see, though, um, is that the one hand washes the other. And we get a huge amount of referrals from restaurants. So for us, it's, it's as important for us to have restaurants around us with good wine lists. You know, so I'm not just pointing fingers at them. I just, I really want them to have good wine lists because it feeds me. Something like Thief, Marble, Orem, those guys, there's somebody is on the floor there, the wine guys there. They send customers our way all the time because they have an amazing wine in that restaurant. The guy says, where can I buy this stuff? They say, oh, down at wine menu. It, it works for all of us. They look good because they know where the guy can buy it and they know where to refer the guy to. The guy comes back and says, cheese man, that place that you sent me last time to go and buy the wine, it's so great because I saw these other wines there. Same token, somebody comes to me and says, like, see, man, where can we go for a, uh, to a restaurant where they have really nice wines on the wine list? You know, I'm going to refer them to one of those restaurants. We've got to understand that we are all interlinked. We have to look after each other. It's not so think, hard to sell those good wines. Do you think that's not understood? I think not enough restaurants understand the power they have in referral. They yeah. just they just service that table. They just make sure that table has a good night and they say goodbye. There's no added know. value. <laughs> they, they would say, if they say, where can I get this wine? They turn the bottle around and they read the back and give them the website address of the farm. I mean, really, they could have done that themselves. But it comes back to that thing of if you are really in touch with your industry, then you know who's who. You know where's the restaurants. You know where's the staff who's passionate. You know, you know we all know each other. We're all in the same industry, and we refer people to each other. Um, but you know, if you're not in that loop, you're never going to get the referral. So I think that restaurants need to understand that uh, you know we send people their way too. But if they're going to have a crappy wine program, I'm not going to send people there. Why must I do that? Because yeah, they might have asked so, for a, yeah. where, what's a good BYO place. What's your uh, what's your take on that as a as a retailer? So obviously, I'd love people to do bring your own all the time because <laughs> when they buy it from me and they take <laughs> it there. <laughs> so that's the selfish viewpoint. Look, I mean, I don't want to tell restaurants how to do their thing, but I remember there was a restaurant that opened in Melville and they didn't have a license yet. And they put a huge sign outside saying, you know, we don't have a license yet, bring your own wine, we don't charge any corkage. And they were packed every night. I I think that restaurants love making their money on their wine, but I think that there are too many restaurants with ridiculous markups on their wine. And that is what's driving people to BYO. If we made the wines a little bit more affordable on the wine list, people won't think about taking their own wine there because, you know, I know I'm going to get a good bottle of wine at a decent price. But, you know, the fact of the matter in South Africa, people are not the richest of the rich at the moment and they want to save a penny where they can. So the restaurant ends up selling three pizzas, no wine and a glass, a bottle of water where they could have sold maybe two bottles of wine if they just had it at a better price. But without um, that so margin, Colleen, you don't have that extra money to invest in someone to help sell it and put the list together. So how, how do you equate those two things? 
So the thing is, I think that the the markup needs to equate to the establishment, the style, what you're doing. And there's just this blanket thing of everybody doing the same markup. Now, if I go to to the Saxon, to marble, whatever, they're going to serve me out of really good glassware, really good service. They've got a sommelier on the floor. I'm happy to pay whatever price they're going to charge me because you know what? I'm paying for the service. I'm paying for this amazing winders that they've put together and everything. But then when I go to my little local Italian down the road and they work with exactly the same markup, but they give me a thick rim glass that can never break and that is scratched and the guy who opens the bottle can't open the bottle. I've got to teach him how to open the bottle and it's not cold and in the wine next to the coffee machine. Why must I pay the same markup? They're putting zero effort into this. I think that's where it comes in for me. I don't mind paying the price. If I know that you are using that money to serve the wine properly, to train people properly, but if you're not going to use the money for that, you're just going to put that money in your pocket, then I'm going to rather bring my own bottle of wine than let you make money out of something that you're not investing back into your staff, back into your property. So I think that people need to be honest to themselves to say, restauranteurs need to go back and say like, listen, right, um, what's kind of establishment do we want to be? Are we five-star? Are we going to serve crystal glassware? Are we going to make sure that our staff are super knowledgeable about the wine and they know what they're talking about, they can serve it with confidence? Or are we just going to be that nice, relaxed place? Well, if you're planning on being just that nice, relaxed place where nobody knows anything, then you can't do a 300% markup. It's not fair. It's not fair to the consumer. And they'll probably quickly work it out. Yeah, the thing is just, I, I really believe that if you... How often do you maybe go for a quick little dinner with your wife and you have a bottle of wine and then you go, oh man, that bottle just had one glass too few in it. But I don't want to buy a whole nother bottle now, have another little glass or something. But if that wine was ridiculously priced, there's no chance I'm even thinking of getting that second bottle or that second glass or anything like that. I'm just going to say, this is where it stops. I have water from here on. And, and again, this takes, so, yeah. this takes engagement on the part of the, uh, of the restaurant owner, which isn't always the case. Now, let's change tack. Let's yep. talk about yep. buying habits in <laughs> uh, in Kateng. Obviously, we've had third of the year so far, unencumbered by uh, more or less unencumbered by uh, by other uh, events. So let's talk about <laughs> the, the last financial year, first of March to uh, 29th of February this year. What changes did you see from this last 12 months from the previous 12 months in terms of buying habits? Um, well, I think that we sort of you. Um, industry that that we're in and if you are based in Johannesburg everybody the majority of our clients are connected to the financial world in some way or form which means that they know what's coming they see that pawpaw coming from a far distance which means they sort of know when to spend and when not to spend we have seen really and I can't just isolate the past 12 months it's really sort of if we look at the past two three years where the patterns have gone. There are no patterns anymore. There are no, we used to have it where, you know, November, December is big months for us because it's corporate gifts, it's Christmas buying, it is holiday buying, it is, everybody's just feeling good and they spend huge amounts of money. January is quiet, but that's okay because, you know, your November and December big sales carry you through January and it's fine. And then they start waking up in February. We don't have a dead season in winter like Cape Town has. Um, For us, it just sort of carries on through the year. But those patterns have completely gone out the window two, three years ago, where suddenly you would see like people, there's, for instance, election. Election's coming. Everybody's like, yeah, Cyril is in, you know, yeah, no, things are looking better. And suddenly you see people spending money. People are sort of relaxing a little bit. 
then suddenly budget speech happens and boom, sales are gone for two, three weeks thereafter. And then everybody needs to drink themselves out of the depression again. So it's been a very up and down seesaw thing. And it's been incredibly difficult for us to predict what's coming and what's to, to plan and to prepare because just out of the blue, suddenly people would buy wine and you go, what just happened? Why, why are they suddenly buying wine? And then suddenly it just dries up. This whole COVID thing actually started affecting us early in January already, to be honest. We um, have bad people murmuring and talking and started feeling, I think it's those people that maybe have foreign investments and stuff and they started seeing what's going on in the world. But yeah, I think the next 12 months is going to be the more interesting thing to talk about in 12 months from now. But the tw- past 12 months has been sort of neither here nor there. It's no serious excitement has happened. Um, no big sales months has really happened. It's sort of just been stable, just just carrying on. You have these moments where you go, like, yeah, 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 it's all happening again. And then suddenly something would happen where some other politician opens his mouth and the whole of Joburg stops spending their money for a week. So yeah, Joburg is definitely reacts to economic changes and trends much quicker. So we feel it on retail very quickly when uh, economy and when politics are unstable. I must say, um, I never, in all the years that I was in Cape Town, I never thought that we reacted to financial and uh, political announcements <laughs> the way in Cape Town that we do in Joburg. It's it's mm. quite interesting. It's a very yeah. quick reaction. Very different. It's a, certainly not a relaxed environment. You certainly have to sort of know what's going on all the time and you know when to push, push, push and when to hold back. But for us, if I have to isolate wine menu out of that, we are sort of a little island you cannot look at a Joburg trend and base it on what happens at wine menu because we are dealing in unique products and we are not, you know, dealing in the same products as everybody else. We are super excited with all the amazing, for us, it's just such an amazing time to be in the wine industry because hell, there's a lot of interesting stuff and the winemakers are coming up with such amazing wines. And we are very fortunate that we have um, a following of people that we can drop a mail or WhatsApp or phone call and say like, dude, We've got this amazing wine coming in from this guy that we told you about, whose wine you bought last time. And that's for us. We are very much sort of like a community service. Mm. We sort of have a handful of family members that uh, that's, that keeps us going. And that's quite nice that they follow us and they follow those things. But again, you know, that's a tiny, tiny little drop in, tiny little percentage of what's out there. It's exciting to be in the industry as far as the products and the offering um, goes, you know, there's so much out there, but but in all fairness, the economy hasn't really played in our favour. The only good thing about uh, the economy, uh, in terms of our movements uh, and reactions to it, is that it affects everyone. So it's not business to business issue. It is a it is an industry and a, an environment issue. Hundred percent. What styles of wine uh, are your customers most after? What are they? What, what's what's on the rise? What's on the what's on the fall? It's quite interesting because we often look at these things and go like, geez, we don't understand why we're selling so much of this suddenly or that suddenly. We've definitely become known for the place where people can find natural wine. We have people that come in and ask for dirty wine. <laughs> we have, literally, they call it dirty wine. So it's okay. that's quite cool that we sort of know where to find the stuff and who's got the stuff. Um, you know, Ex-Animal Portfolio has plenty for us to, <laughs> to dig Yeah, all, all, all the but, dirty um, stuff, yeah, exactly. <laughs> almost, almost. All the yeah, good so dirty stuff. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem is what see so this is a side that's it's so much fun and it makes it exciting except and it also at the same time is frustrating that sometimes uh, these things are in such small supply. Mm. So the good thing is that when it comes along, people are 
racing for it, you know. So quick, 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 quick. Everybody's it's exciting, but then it's gone. And then a month later, somebody comes like, oh, I want more of that. It's like, no, dude, it's gone now. Next year again. And I guess that's why the big retailers don't do it. They want to be able to sell something 12 months a year. For us, there's some things that we sell for one week of the year. And then there's other things that's a little bit available for a little bit longer. But yeah, so we are definitely seeing a big up on our side on interesting natural wine. People are asking us more and more for, you know, no additions, no, no sulfur, no this, no that. They're not specifically asking for no sulfur wine, but they're asking for low sulfur. But there's definitely people that's starting to realize, no, you don't need the sulfur to keep the wine fresh. It's all in the winemaker and the vineyards and the stuff. And Sauvignon Blanc sales are down a lot for us, interestingly enough. Is that because you um, tell people you don't have the, the wines that they ask for? No, I think it's simply a matter of people come and ask for something light and crisp and fresh. And we don't just run to the Sauvignon Blanc shelf. There's other stuff that's light and crisp and fresh. And it's eye-opener for people. They're like, what? I've, I've never thought of drinking Grenache Blanco. I never thought of drinking Albarino. What's Albarino? Uh, what's this Vimentino? It's quite nice when you can play with people and through that educate um, them on this other stuff out there, dudes. You don't have to drink the same thing all the time. So on the white wine side, we're definitely always very busy on the Chenin Blanc and South African blends, Chenin Blanc blends sort of uh, side. That's all very category for us. It changes and, and rotates very quickly. And then on the red wine side, we generally quite busy on the sort of Cinso Grenache Rhone blend sort of side. Definitely stronger on the Rhone side than we are on the Bordeaux side of varieties. So um, that's definitely where we see a lot of things happen. But, you know, when you have such amazing Syrahs coming out of the country, you know, talking about your craft, Sons of Sugarland, Epilaco, uh, Lili Fonsaren is one of my favorite Syrahs at the moment. I just absolutely love that wine and it's such a good price <laughs> you know mm. uh, and it's so easy for us to just tell people about it and they go and they buy it and they come back for more um porcelain but these kind of things so we have such amazing sort of roni kind of wines that and a lot of those wines are also made uh, in the net more natural way which also i guess links in with the whole idea of people coming and asking for that style wine are people asking for um, that though are they asking for more Rhone style of wines or are people asking for just good red wine and you steer them towards the Rhone styles because that's what you think is the best style i think that they're asking more for lighter fresher red wines so people are starting to realize goodness man we don't have to chew through oak it's not necessary so we definitely see a increase we have people asking that they want interesting light fresh reds i mean that's just fantastic and there's a huge amount on offer out there, you know, and you certainly don't get that normally in the murder and the cabernet category. But people used to think that if you want something light and easy, it's got to be Merlot. That was the South African mindset that light and easy is Merlot. And we go and we say, like, no, 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 wait, no. Well, light and easy doesn't have to be Merlot. Let, let me show you what's on the shelf. And then there's all this lovely light wines out there. And majority of them are generally sort of road varieties. Um, and then there's obviously a few really nice light and fresh pinotages out there, which is fantastic. And a few nice and easy pinot noirs out there. That's also fantastic and at great price points. So, yeah, it's really easy to to steer people into different uh, varieties and directions. And, and I think that's why people come back, because they realize that you didn't just give them what they asked for. You actually gave them something else and they were super surprised and, and pleased. That's, I think, where the trend is going at Wine Menu. And what about producers? No, have, you, have you seen what are the, the most recent producers that have sold really well with you? Well, I do think that something like Alight has certainly climbed a little bit on the radar. People are 
more and more aware of him and asking for that. And, uh, you know, those people that are not in the know about the fact that it releases once a year and then it's gone, they come and ask all year round. It was like, oh, I just had this bottle the other day at this restaurant. Do you have more of us? Like, nope. Yeah. Do you have any Radio Lazarus? No. So exactly. So those kind of things happen, which is great because it means that they have taken notice of it. And that's a way for us to say, no, but give us your name because we're going to put you on the waiting list for when it comes. And that's yeah. how you keep the interest going. Van Lochrenberg definitely is, an, is a name that I think I can even go back three years only. Hardly anybody knew about. We sort of made them by Geronimo because we loved it so much. I think Break a Leg came along and that opened a few people's eyes to, oh, wait, rosé rose can be pretty good. Um, I still think that's best rosé in the country. You know, so that's definitely a name that is now much more known than it was before. So, yeah, I, I don't think for us, there's not really a producer or like a handful of producers even that I can single out. You know, this it's very much a big basket full of names because there are so many of them that come and go so quickly. Just longer. It's never going to become the name that people talk about 12 months a year because there's only one month that they can talk about it. So there's certain things that come and go so quickly that some people completely miss it. You know, if you don't know what's going on, you're going to miss it. Uh, and then it's another year before it comes along. Restless River is definitely another one that people have. I think that. I guess if I go about five years back when I, I used to phone Anne and ask, beg for more Cabernet and stuff like that, and there was one or two clients that really loved it and we used to buy it, to where it is now. Certainly a lot more people knowing about it, which is fantastic. So yeah, those kind of things. But we don't have one brand that stands out as the one that people chase. No, no, I'm not asking for you know a specific yeah. brand, but just in general, you know, what what have you, you over the over the period of time? Uh, and conversely, what are people asking less of that they were asking for sort of two three years ago? They're definitely asking less for the sort of entry level Bordeaux stuff. You know, South African Bordeaux blends. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, French. I, I, I definitely yeah see a decline in that. They realise there's other stuff there. Um, Sauvignon Blanc, as I said, is definitely a decline in Sauvignon Blanc on our side. But at the same time, I must admit that there are some Sauvignon Blancs that we don't really sell as Sauvignon Blancs. You know, if you look at a Rainica Reserve White, for me, that's just not Sauvignon Blanc. It's just such an amazing wine. It just happens so to be. It's, it's, just, slip, it's, it's a great wine that. Uh, just happens to be made from... It happens to be something you blank. And I think that that's where I would want to go with this kind of thing. And we that's what we tend to do. We tend to look at a wine as a wine and not see ourselves blind at what's the variety in the bottle. It's yeah. more about what's what's in the bottle as a wine. Um, and Trezant Sondagskloof is like that very much. Um, if you I look at the blacksmith, what's it called? Skinner Bones. Those kind of things. It's uh, Or Chaos White from Algen Rich. You know, those wines, you can't sell them on the Sauvignon Blanc shelf and expect a Sauvignon Blanc lover to buy it and love it. It's different. It's a category of its own. And that's fantastic. I think you and I both have spoken about it in the past that I think that there's some interesting Sauvignon Blancs that's going to come out in the 2020 harvest. I've certainly heard uh, of quite a few guys that's playing with a variety this year. And that's super cool because then we can show people that Sauvignon Blanc uh, those people that say, like, I drink everything, but just don't give me a Sauvignon Blanc. I hate Sauvignon Blanc. Maybe we can say to them, like, oh, but you don't have to hate Sauvignon Blanc. There's some interesting stuff out there. If Sauvignon Blanc, uh, traditional Sauvignon Blanc is not your thing, it's okay. But these other Sauvignon don't close the door to Sauvignon Blanc. There's some really interesting stuff out there. We, At the same time, I think that if I look back five years ago, the amount of people that used to say to me, no, 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 I don't drink Chenin Blanc. It's far too sweet. 
That was the words that I used to hear. It's too sweet. Like, okay, so now what is sweet about this wine? Let's talk about it. Let me understand why you're calling it sweet. And then when you start realizing what people are calling sweet, then you realize, well, it's actually a lack of acid that that they have in their... It's just a lack of freshness. Yeah, I think that, you know, as I say again, wine menu is not the trend um, in, in Joburg, but for us, it's really exciting to see how we have managed to mold and move people to be more open to exploring and trying other stuff and, and t- taking our word for it, I guess, because we do have people that would phone ahead and say, look, listen, I'm coming to pick up a case of wine. Can you just put something together for me? I trust whatever you put in the box. We yeah. love it. That's fantastic. Yeah. But that only comes after years of building trust. You can't sell wine that doesn't exist. So it only comes after the guys have actually, in the production side of things, have been making these wines for mm-hmm. a few years and you've got confidence in them and then you can put your name behind their wines also. So it, it is a sort Quite of a, right. you can't put the cart before the horse with these things. You, you do need access to the wines and have enough good wine at your disposal. One, be very confident in them and, and two, have enough uh, variety and confidence in, in enough wines that you can give people mm-hmm. a, a varied experience. So if, for example, if you're selling the same three wines to everybody who comes through the door because they're the only three mm-hmm. wines in that price point that work, then people will get tired of you sell the same wine to them over and over again. There is this sort of obsession with the new in South Africa. So people are, mm-hmm. only want the new wines. They, they're not, again, I'm painting with broad brushstrokes. I certainly see that from dealing with trade. So restaurants and retailers only want the new wines. No, no, we've, we've had the uh, the 2018 Breton. We want the, the 2019. Do you see that in, uh, in your customer base as well? To a certain extent, yes, but not maybe as much as, as you see it in, in Cape Town restaurants. We have that thing where people, which those people that have their fingers on the pulse, Say, for instance, I say to them, listen, I've got some Epilock available. They would say to me, which vintage is it? Um, no, well, it's 18 that's coming out now. It's like, oh, okay, as long as you don't try and sell me 17 again because I already have it. So that's different. For us, it goes the other way around. We often have customers looking for the previous vintage, the one that's no longer available. And as a retailer, you know, that's difficult because sometimes they go like, so now the 18s are coming out, Right. And they're all stuck on the 17s because they have heard that 17 is the best ever vintage and therefore they need to chase the 17s. We still have people coming in and saying, no, 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 I've got to have the 15. I'm like, but dude, but you're three vintages behind now. Um, you know, I, I, I can't do the 15 for you anymore. So for us, it's actually the other way around. The frustration is the other way around that yeah. I wish I had uh, run back earlier in my life so that I could have bought wines and stored them in a cellar so that I can pull out these old vintages whenever somebody asks for it. Um, but yeah, I think that, and that comes back down to that thing of being five steps behind in Joburg maybe where sometimes the people in Joburg pick up on, on something that is amazing, but they pick up on it just a few months too late and it's gone. But yeah, so. So who do people listen to? Are people following journalists slavishly? Who, who, who do they, I mean, obviously they can't taste it and drink everything. So they at some point have to rely on other sources. Is platters? Guide still a, a huge get a huge following in terms of being a guide to what to drink. Uh, Tim Atkin, there's Christian Eves, obviously for Wine Mag. There's Michael Fridgen. What else is uh, people listening to up in up in Johannesburg in terms of helping them to guide them? In Joburg, there's again it comes down to those guys that have their finger on the pulse already. Those customers that um, have been on it for many years before we even came to Joburg. You know, they have long gone been following whoever's out there, Wine Magazine, East Christian Eats, Tim Atkin, whoever, you know. So it's, but it's a handful of people who really 
know who said what when and when did Greg Sherwood say something and, uh, you know, wine spectator, whatever. But I see a lot less of that. I see more and more people coming and asking us what's our opinion. So we find that sales in our shop is very much driven by what we recommend. However, when it, when it comes to ratings, I think the platter five stars definitely carries a lot of weight. When that comes out, there's a lot of people that pay attention to it. However, I don't see people carrying their platters around with them anymore. I don't see people referring to the platters all the time anymore. I've always said, you know, it's a guideline. It's never supposed to be a Bible. But um, for me, it's a telephone book. But I think the platters five-star ratings definitely carries uh, a lot of weight. And when it comes out and if it has that sticker on, I think in Joburg, Michael Friedjohn really is the one that a lot of people know personally, actually. So it's not just a person sitting somewhere tasting wine and telling them what they must drink. It's actually Michael Friedjohn has a personal relationship with a lot of people and therefore they, yeah. they really listen to what he says. So that he speaks to the size of, of the market of at the Joburg. top end, doesn't it? Yeah, but I think that, yeah. So he has he definitely has his following and his people who definitely... And it's a personal thing, you know, that follow him personally. It's not just this rating that comes out in a magazine or something. So I have a few people that would tell me like, oh, I see Christian tasted this and he said this and this and this about it. Are you going to get some? So, yeah, so we definitely get that. And Tim Atkin has really, in the past few years, a huge amount of my clients are waiting for that report to come out. Oh, really? So the Tim yeah. Atkin's report, yeah, no, that's uh, that definitely carries a lot of weight. A lot of people trust his ratings and follow his ratings a lot more than definitely four years ago, even three years ago, even I could say people with just a handful of people that even knew that he existed. Uh, now I can honestly say there's a lot more people that know him. But what I, all these competitions, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. So it's another hour for us, but we're not going to go there. But there are just so many competitions in Africa and every wine farm thinks that the more stickers they have on the bottle, the better that bottle is going to sell. And yes, to a certain extent, maybe, but certainly in my shop, it doesn't make any difference whether that bottle has got a sticker on or not. Okay. And I really wish I could just see a few less competitions going on. Uh, there are just too many, man. And the people just don't know which ones to trust and whether they should follow it or not. And they don't even know what the sticker stands for. So it's in the end of the day, it's a huge amount of money that's being spent on stickers. And I don't actually know whether it really equates into sales for most of these places. For us, certainly, the stickers don't turn into sales. What's the problem with uh, with lots of competitions? Do you think they're diluting each other? I just think that there are just too many. But why do you think that? What, is it just too hard to follow? The, or? the consumer doesn't, yeah. I think he's certain in one competition, there would be a wine that gets a double goal, for instance, winner of its category. Yes. The next competition, that same wine gets a bronze. No, yes. what the hell? Who must I believe? So which one of those two panels were the better panel? Or was it a flower day versus a root day? Or what the hell? You know, there are so many things that change what a wine tastes like on a day, or who tastes it, and all these kind of things. So the thing is that I think competitions used to be the gospel. If somebody gives it a double gold, it must be damn fine. Yes. But now there's five competitions judging the same wine in six months' time, and each one of them come out with a different result. So now you don't know what not. Isn't that a better reflection of what wine actually is rather than saying, no, we need to only have two competitions because we need some consistency and, and, a, and a, con a clarity of message? I think having lots of competitions with lots of different up and down results of wines actually re represents the reality of wine. You know, wines do taste different to different people. Preferences come into play 
as you say, the experience and uh, and quality of the panels is varied. So I, I think it's yeah. yeah I've got a, probably a slightly different uh, point of view than than you. I think I think the more competitions, yeah. the better, because it actually the more varied uh, results, the better, because it actually reflects better what wine is all about. There is no uh, well, very very few wines that are universally amazing for everybody on the planet. True, but you say, for instance, you have five wines standing next to each other on the shelf. Each one of them has got a gold sticker on it, but for a different competition. And each yes. one of them got a gold at a competition. Is that wine great or isn't it? Because the farm is not going to tell you that out of the five competitions we entered, we got three bronzes, one silver and one gold. No, no, no. They're only going to tell you about that gold. So now my question is, is that wine a bronze wine or is it a gold wine? It's got three bronzes. So surely it should be a bronze wine rather. So I think that... Then something like that, uh, what's it called again? That index, the wine index thingy, where they take oh, all yeah. the different competitions and they put it into a big pot and they come out and say, like, well, these guys were the consistent performers across board for the year. That's quite cool. I think I like that. And that takes all the, well, I don't know how many of the competitions it takes into consideration, but certainly quite a few of them. Surely that um, uh, preferences people who enter a lot of competitions, though. Exactly. So, again, if you have the budget, to be able to enter a lot of competitions, obviously you're going to do better at that thing. Mm. But there's the small guys who are generally the guys that we follow. A majority of the wines that we sell are from guys that certainly not going to spend their money on entering competitions. Really? No, yeah. they don't have that kind of a budget. They're going to spend that money rather on the wine, the farm where they're buying their grapes to ensure that they get better grapes rather. Yeah. Because for them, the passion is in what's in the bottle, not in how many stickers they put on the bottle. Again, it comes back down to us really knowing which wines are good and not being led by competitions. I cannot personally ever be led by a competition and results of a competition, ever. Because then yeah. I'm only going to play in a tiny market and my eyes are going to be closed to a lot of the amazing wines out there who never, ever enter competitions. What I do like yeah. instead of competitions is the individual rating. So for me, for instance, I know whose palettes I agree with out there. So if James Peterson, just about 99.9% .9 of the time, I agree completely with his palette. When he tells me a wine is really great and he's tasted it, then I know I can blindly buy that. It's going to be great. That individual tasting notes and individual ratings for me actually carries more weight. That's why Tim Atkin is so popular because uh, there's a huge amount of people that really agree with his palate. And say, so like, you know, it's not a competition or anything like that, but if Tim says this is good, it must be bloody good. Hmm. Um, so for me, I think that carries a little bit more weight for me. I, I no, have to follow I agree the individual sure. palette rather than the panel because the panel is always going to get to some kind of average. For me, I, I prefer to follow the individual palette. That's, oh, that's where I am. And, no, uh, no, I understand. I just wanted yeah. to, yeah, I think people think that in wine competitions, if something gets a gold medal, then it's, then it's finished first, as, you know, as you would do in the Olympics, mm. but it's... That's actually nowhere near the case. Mm. It's just a, a minimum requirement. So there can be, mm. you know, out of 80 wines in a category, there can be, you know, as many as 80 gold medal winners in that category if all of the wines are good. Mm. So it's not that it's... Look, uh, I, think it, it, I think it really, really helps the retailer, the, the big supermarkets, sort of the big retailers, the big places. Because, you know, if you sit with five wines next to each other, say, for instance, there's five Merlots next to each other, they're all more or less the same price and one of them has got a gold stick on it, that wine's going to sell because the, the customer there isn't as knowledgeable or doesn't have somebody guiding them along the way standing in front of the shelf. So well, the, yeah. I do think that... That's the only information yeah, they have to go If you're one of those on. producers... Yeah, if you're a cooperative produ producer or somebody who produces stuff in rather large quantities, 
then that sticker is certainly going to put you a nudge ahead of the guy next to you sitting at the same price point on the same shelf. And if the wine competitions didn't sell wine, like if they didn't actually move wine, they wouldn't exist. Mm. You know what? People wouldn't pay to go into them. Another another thing I want to talk to you about is online versus in-store sales. What, what are you seeing there in terms of trends up in, uh, up in Johannesburg? Are you seeing a movement to more online sales? How far down the path are you, in, in fact, as wine menu? You're not super aggressive on online, are you? No, it's because it's never been our core side of our business. It was always sort of the add-on, making it easy for a few people. But um, I think going forward, we certainly are going to and are already putting more effort into that. Um, and especially if things like this lockdown happens and hopefully the government lifts uh, some of the restrictions uh, and then we possibly will only be able to do online trading in any case. Um, so look, the future is in online. Um, in South Africa, I think we've been slow on online, not from the offering side, more from the consumer side. And it's a trust thing, again, that People are scared to put their credit card details in there. They don't know if they can trust you. I think it's very different having ordering wine versus ordering a ream of paper, you know, via takealot.com. I do think, though, that it is the future. We we really have to. And, you know, we can only take our hats off to wine seller. That's been absolutely amazing at how they do um, their stuff. I, I have a huge amount of respect for those guys for how they do it. And uh, it's never been our focus to to be like that. But I do think that there is a focus change for us in the sense that, you know, if social distancing becomes a thing that needs to continue for the next 12 months, then you're not going to have huge amounts of people uh, racing to your store. They're going to try and find a way of shopping without contactless shopping. So really, in the end of the day, maybe online shopping should change its name to contactless shopping because that's a buzzword right now. Contactless shopping, but, yes. um, Got to be the way, but South Africa has been slow, not just for wine. South Africa in general has been slow with online online buying. If you, But it started out with um, delivery services being expensive. So you cannot do online shopping without paying for, for the courier. Um, so a lot of us, uh, you know, you can look at all of us. We have a sort of a, a minimum spend and thereafter you get free delivery. You know, then we absorb that delivery. But it's not like it's suddenly free. It just means that we absorb it. Right, and logistics so, is a uh, logistics is an issue for wine in South Africa. There's no no getting yes, around that. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I mean if you look at something like the UK, you know, anything you want to send, like there's the Royal Mail and they're fantastically efficient. You know, you can send anything anywhere very, very quickly. You can't do that in South Africa. No. So people have more of a worry of spending their money, ordering something online. And then they sit and they wait. And yeah, then they there's worry. A, there's, a confidence, three, there's a confidence like, issue. Yeah. yeah. So, again, yeah. for us, that's why we decided maybe – so we have built more of a relationship thing with our customers. Now we have customers who have been our come into shop customers by foot, and they are turning into online customers yeah. because they are now – they do not – they trust us now. There's now yeah. confidence. You know, we – so – so I think for us, it was a bit more of a process. We didn't want to come out as this unknown wine menu. Who the hell is that? We now, people know who we are. So now they will feel a little bit more confident supporting us online as well. Yeah, but logistics is a problem. Logistics is probably the biggest problem. Yeah, it's um, it's yeah, it's something that uh, I worry about. All of the, the farms I work with worry about. Even the, the customers I, I sell to, it's always the... The, the, the most um, concerned about link in the chain from farm to glass, for sure. Thank you, Colleen, for your time. I really appreciate it. Going off all the way into all sorts of directions. Thank you. Chatting to you, man. Yeah, cool, man. And uh, maybe we can yeah. do it again down the line.
Yeah, good luck on your side. I hope we can start moving some bottles very soon between that would, us. That would be helpful. 